So how you been? Uh, good. Yeah. Working hard. Are we starting? Yeah. All I, right. And basically, well, you, you never, you never know when people. <laughs> yeah, it's good. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a good time to be in the music business and the music industry because there's no. I just find that the more that I stick around and the more that I think I know, the more I realize that I don't know anything. See, that surprises me when I hear you say that. Because I, in, from the outsider's point of view, I look at the music industry and I think, holy shit, it's a mess. And, yeah. and, and, and maybe because I'm used to things working a certain way and they don't work that way anymore. Yeah. But I just don't see it as being a good thing. So tell me how it's a good... Um, I, I think, you know, it's always been, um, it's always been really easy to get noticed. I think it's always been easy to get that lucky break. It's hard to be great. And I think if you're an artist and I do publicity in the music industry, so I see artists that I could look at and say, in three years, you're going to be amazing. Just stick with it. Try not to go broke. <laughs> and then there's other artists like uh, David Clayton Thomas or Sue Foley or um, 5440 or Bruce Coburn that you look at and you say you, you are just continuing to go on a trajectory that is only limited by your imagination. And all of those veteran heritage classic artists have taught me that you could put out the greatest album of your career, but in 2018, you're not going to get played on the radio anymore. There's no spot for you on, you know, Chum FM or there's no much music. There's no MTV. So you, you kind of see this cycle in the music industry where all of those avenues were open in the eighties when you were young in, in your thirties and there were very few roads to take. You released a record, you released a single, you got on the radio, you got a video on much music, you toured. That was it. That was your cycle. Mm -hmm. Now you could explode on Instagram and not have a single radio spin. You could have a million views on YouTube and think that that's amazing only to find out that that's not the new breaking number now. Now it's 10 million, <laughs> you know. Now you are not only in competition with every artist in your city or the style of music that you play, but every artist in the history of the planet is available on Spotify right. or iTunes. So you're not in competition if you're a blues artist with another blues artist. So if you're a blues artist, you're not in competition anymore with Sufoli or Joe Bonamassa or, or you're in competition now with B.B. King and Albert King and Muddy Waters and the other greats because we're all in the same competition for the exact same eyes and ears as everybody else. So when I go back and I say it's really easy to get a break, I think it's still the music business. I think there's always people who would want to make money off of your art. But it's hard to be great when there's so many different avenues in order to be great in. And it just doesn't have anything to do with the music a lot anymore. Right. The money that people can make, is it the same as what they could have made before? Or is not it less because close. of the streaming and all that? No, not even close. Now, a, a, a stream on Spotify pays 0.0004 cents 
which means that for every million streams that you have or that <clears throat> you're able to get on Spotify, um, you make $4,000. When you're talking about the artists back in the day of, say, even the 80s, selling, you know, look, at, at its peak of like 1989 to 1991, 92, when CDs were selling for $27. Right. And, and Britney Spears and NSYNC and Backstreet Boys and Nirvana and Michael Jackson and Red Hot Chili Peppers and Pearl Jam. And when all these artists were selling 12 million copies, that's a lot of money that you make for the artist. It, it, you, you, you will never see those numbers ever again in the, it, forever. Um, and when you think, wow, a million people have heard this song as opposed to getting a spin on the radio... Um, that's a million different people to make $4,000 on that. It's a lot yeah. to, to try to get a million streams. If you're Drake, you make that every hour, right. you know, you do that and you figure out the numbers and you're like, wow, Drake is doing well. You know, <laughs> Sean Mendez is doing well. Um, but if you're an artist now, you're lucky if you're a blues artist or a folk artist or, or an indie rock artist, you'll be lucky to go through your first run of CDs because the only place to sell them is through your live show. And how many artists can play more than 30 times a year? How many artists have a booking agent that can get them 30 gigs a year? It's not a lot anymore. So when you say it's a really good time, yeah, how do those <laughs> artists, how do how? Those artists be? how is it? Um, it's a really good time because knowing full well that it, that it's all up for grabs. That if you happen to be an artist that loves to cook, you can make videos that have nothing to do with your music and find other ways to get what makes you a human being. You know, artists forget sometimes that like their their worst day as an artist is sometimes better than most people's best day ever. And they get to go do all these things, but then they're human. They like to garden. Some like to cook. Some like to volunteer their time at the local animal shelter. And the ability that you can show what you're doing now and spread the word about you helps bring back the music rather than only rely on the music. And because there's so many different avenues that you can promote yourself, whether it's through Facebook or Twitter or um, Instagram or Snap or your website or, um, you know, the live music. I mean, bands and artists that complain that they can't get any gigs don't realize that, well, they can just do a show in their living room by themselves, go on Facebook Live, and even if 400 people watch it, that's 400 people that spent time watching you as opposed to something else. So I think it puts way more of a power back in the artist's hands which goes back to, but you still have to be great mm -hmm. because we don't have time for good anymore. Nobody has time for good. But you deal with artists at various levels yeah. from way up there mm -hmm. to newcomers. Sure. Um, when you deal with older artists who have seen the better days, are they bitter? Or have they, do most of them adjust to this new world? Or do they just say, I'm a musician, all I want to do is play, that's yeah. all that matters? I think five years ago, my answer would be really different. I think five years ago when, when you know, in Canada, when HMV went under and Sam the Record Man went under, I, I think it put a little bit of a shock to most of these artists because they were so used to not only selling vinyl records and then eight tracks and cassettes and then CDs to 
What do you mean? What, what am I selling now? What am I? Well, you're selling tickets. You know, right. you were always selling tickets. Just back then, the tour would help pay and support and promote the album. Now, like the album supports the tour. So I think a lot of these veteran artists had a little bit of a couple of years of shock, just wondering, I've never even seen anything like this. Because when you were, if you were successful in the 60s and 70s or even in the 80s, I'm going to say like 60s or 70s, when, when the CD format came along, it replaced vinyl records and cassettes to a large extent, but it was even more money that you were seeing. Mm-hmm. So there was always something to replace whatever format people were consuming music. I always said, I, I, I never, I don't like to tell people how to consume music. I just want them to consume music. So it doesn't matter what the format is. It didn't matter if it was on a shiny disc or on a cassette or a vinyl record or a file. To me, it's just all the same. But when you've when you're an artist and you only see this physicalness of that is my album, and suddenly you see that your music is being given away for free with a subscription, it's really difficult to wrap your head around. And I think artists now are only seeing the effects of that today in 2017 and 2018 because their royalty checks have gone from six figures a year to you know maybe mid five figures in some cases even low fives and part of that <clears throat> is that when they were on the hit radio in the 70s now they're getting played on radio stations like boom fm and jack fm and dave fm playing you know the best of the 80s 90s and 2000s when that format started at radio it was the best of the 50s 60s and 70s and now then it was like the 60s 70s and 80s and i would talk to artists that are like this is my year like (laughs) this is my year it's like what are you talking about well well, all those songs i wrote from like 1967 to 69 two years from now it's going to be on the radio in big time because those were the baby boomer era of of you know, now I'm 45 or 50 and I'm prime advertising because I've got all this disposable income. My kids don't are, don't live at home. I can vacation where I want to. So I still have all this money. Maybe I'm working. Maybe So for radio, that was like the prime demographic. And then, you know, five or six years ago, all those stations flipped from that to the best of the 80s. 90s and 2000s so all those artists from the 60s unless you had a massive run of hits like the stones or the beatles or or you know elton john it's like unless you're in those superstar artists or billy joel you you were kind of left behind now and that's okay like that's the way it should be when i was a kid growing up in the 70s i clearly remember listening to 1050 Chum, which played, you know, they were like the oldie stations, but kind of current. So they would be playing Lou Rawls from the 60s and 70s, but they would be playing Elvis every hour. Right. When I think back in the mid-70s, listening to music from 1956 and Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper and all those bands, the Everly Brothers, um, that was a 25-year difference. That doesn't seem very long to me. But then now I'm sitting here closing in on my 40s, that's the difference between me playing my 15-year-old daughter a song from 1986 going, isn't this cool? And she's like, no. Like, no, the Human League and Duran Duran are not, it's not even in her thinking. 
And that's the, that's that generation gap. So if you're an artist, um, that had maybe a couple of hits in the sixties or mid seventies, you may only have another year or two left until it shifts to, you know, remember this classic from 2010? It's like 2010. What? That was like eight months ago. It's like, no dude, like that's like, that's 10 years ago. And that's a lifetime when it comes to somebody's music career. But are there bands out there making still decent money off radio airplay because they fit into that 80s and 90s? Or? Yeah, yeah. And it's also that it, it, it gives you a chance to parlay it into something else. So that if you were if you were having success in the 80s, those were really lean years in the 90s and 2000s, unless you stayed on the road. 5440, for instance, never came off the road. Um, the Northern Pikes never got off the road. Glass Tiger never got off the road. But there's other artists that are struggling to go back on the road because they've essentially been forgotten about. Right. They weren't um, they weren't around for the 1990s, 2000s, playing at the, your local casino, never allowing themselves to be forgotten about. It's why artists, like, you know, it's really easy to see why artists, like, Journey or um, Tears for Fears or Hall and Oates or even all this rock stuff that's coming out, Boston, um, Aerosmith, Hart, Joan Jett. These artists are selling out like 20,000 seat arenas or amphitheaters across North America in the summertime because they just never left. But they had some really lean years where it wasn't cool to listen to Hall and Oates. Right. Not in my house. But it wasn't, you know, there were times when you couldn't find them on the radio. And I think in the Canadian scene, you know, you have Blue Rodeo who never left. Right. You know, um, Arcade Fire is like that, where they never took four years off. A lot of these artists coming up, they know that they can't just suddenly take eight months off and then start recording an album. They have to go into the recording studio the second they get off the road or else they're going to be forgotten about because a whole new batch of newer up and coming kids are going to like kick them out and say, well, there you go. You haven't posted on Instagram in three weeks. We're going to steal your audience, you know? So it's a, it's a little bit of a, of a, of a different attitude that these artists have to take now. It's a constant, constant grind, which is a real shame because, you know, you've probably talked to way more artists than I have, but you know, when you talk to artists who, or bands who have split up at one time or another, um, if they got back together again, or if they didn't, they'll always say, you know, wow, I wish I, we, we just could have taken a year off from yeah. each other. Like we were so sick of one <laughs> another sitting in that van or that plane over and over again, night after night. Um, if they just had that time off away from one another, the band would still be together again. Now there's no, there's no breaks anymore. So I think that we're going to see a lot of burnout in these bands because they constantly need to show that they're doing stuff or else somebody's going to come along and say, eh, we moved on from you. But in a way, in the late 60s and early 70s, it was like that. With bands like Elton John was turning out three albums a year. Sure. And touring. And Isn't that amazing of a thought? It's like three albums a year. Like the Monkees, I think, put out four albums in one year. All of them hit number one. It's like that would be... That would be a crime in the 70s to do because it would be like, wait, you know, we're not done exhausting, squeezing every ounce of dollars out of all this stuff. But why do you think between, let's say, 67, 68 and 72, some of the greatest music was ever recorded? I think the drugs got better. I, I, I do. I think, I think there was just this spirit of 
anything goes, you know, um, the spirit of the DJs being able to play what they wanted to play, um, the program directors letting people do what they wanted to do. Nobody asked for the Beatles. You know, nobody asked for Crosby, Steele, Nash and Young. Nobody asked for Woodstock, you know. Um, but the same thing could be said for now and, 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 you know, years. Nobody asked for the Sex Pistols and nobody certainly asked for the Bee Gees to go disco. But it was the ability to just follow what your muse or your songwriting talent got you. But I think those four or five years, it, it was, you know, the rise of, of FM radio allowed more deeper cuts and longer songs and, and more songs that didn't necessarily fit in the formula of what pop music was. Because when you think about it, it's like, 67, 68, 69 with the Summer of Love. Only four years ago, the Beatles were singing about She Loves You, Yeah, 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 mm-hmm. and and Love Me Do to, you know, I Am the Eggman, Ju, 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 you know, like that. That's a, that's a lifetime. And yeah. everybody was consistently changing, um, not just in their spirits, but their songwriting ability and their talent. I mean, Bob Dylan just blew the whole door wide open Um you know, during that era. And I think that you just had all these leaders coming along in separate places around America and Canada and around the world that knew that 10 years ago might have seemed like a long time. And it really wasn't. But everything had changed from the early 60s of skiffle and happy rock music that was, you know, didn't, didn't harm anything to, you know, a day in the life. And we just, we really haven't seen that in the last like 10 or 15 years. And maybe because I'm just old and, and, you know, I think Kendrick Lamar is amazing. I think Kendrick Lamar is pushing rap music and hip hop and urban music way forward than anybody else or people like Frank Ocean. But like, you know, we may never have another moment where Nirvana just explodes on the charts and kills off all the hair metal bands that were from LA, you know, when Nirvana's Nevermind came out, it was expected to sell 33,000. I mean, they shipped out 30,000 copies of that record and it, ended up, and it ended up selling 15 million. Nobody could predict that all these disenfranchised, disillusioned kids and teenagers would all be feeling the same way no matter where they were. And I think that music of the late 60s hit right on that mark without anybody even asking permission for it. Interesting. I'm talking to that Eric Alper media relations radio personality yeah all those all things all those things all those things i want to go back you have you have a certain <laughs> history with with toronto tell me about your grandfather and 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 his con- connection to music yeah my my parents um i don't come from a musical family at all my my parents don't really they never played an instrument we never really had music in the house but it really my my musical history really starts with my grandfather his name was Al Grossman and he had um a bar that he started in 1948 called Grossman's Tavern and at the time it was one of the very few places that you could see live music in Toronto and he was a big blues fan and a big jazz fan and and um when he got his liquor license uh, a, a couple of years later, a short time later, um, the city of Toronto thought that um, that, the, that the entire city would go to hell. You know, <laughs> mixing music and alcohol was just, you know, the devil's work. Um, and it ended up to be right. 
Um, and, uh, so I, I, I remember as a kid being able to go down to the bar and just dancing to these blues artists and these jazz artists, but never really having a clue what it actually was, or if I was the only kid that had this opportunity or if everybody's family was like this. Um, but I always had, I always had an interest in, in music. I I can't play. I still can't play. I, I suck at everything that I've ever attempted to do in terms of music or, or otherwise. Um, There's a picture on your website yeah, with you with a guitar and in front of your daughter, and it looks like you're like playing for her. Like. Yeah, yeah, that was in the Barbie room at the Hilton. That was a fake one, thank God, because <laughs> if we could ever play, it would be like that. But I've always, I've always had an interest in music. I had a subscription to Billboard magazine when I was 12, and I, I, I loved, I wasn't a geek like some people I know were and still are where they can memorize the keyboard player for this B side with this catalog catalog number. I never, I never thought about it like that. I always thought about it like this was like, I learned more about the world around me and society based on music. Like I found out more about what was happening, you know, in Ethiopia and Africa through Band-Aid and Do They Know It's Christmas. Right. You know, all of those songs. I learned about Sun City and Apartheid and how black and white people treated one another because of Little Steven and Sun City. Like, that's how I learned about these things. And I didn't, I didn't necessarily learn them through the history books. And um, so instead of picking up a guitar and writing my own future, um, I, I knew that if I wanted to do something, I was either going to be working behind the scenes or, or doing something else. And so um, I went to university, worked at the campus radio station, sucked at doing that, worked at the campus newspaper, was a horrible editor. Um, but I loved it. I loved being around, you know, the artists at the time. I mean, Mike, you know, I, did, I had a show on like CHRY for like a year and it was like, it was, you know, three to five o'clock in the morning on a Thursday. Like nobody was listening and I didn't care. I was like the happiest person. I felt like I was doing God's work. Like I felt like it was so wonderful just to be talking to somebody and I stunk at it. I was horrible. I still am, you know? Um, well, no, I can't imagine you being horrible if you're on oh, serious cause, success. Cause I still have this vision of like, you know, like, hey, this is, you know, like I like the radio voice you grew up on that's still like, oh, you are not like them. Um, but I just happened to be a music fan that I, I loved hanging out um, and talking to musicians about what things were like. And so I started a PR company once I graduated, and that was in, um, you know, 1995. Did that for a couple of years, worked at a couple of record labels and worked at Koch and E1 where you and I first met. And yeah. then... Uh, went off on my own a couple of years ago for my own PR company. So I'm just happy that I, I never really had a, a real job outside of the arts. So if we go back yeah. to, I don't know if you mind talking about this, but I read somewhere you lost your hearing at a Who concert. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Yeah. Can you yeah. tell me about that? Like, that just seems horrible, and at a young age as well. Yeah. With, with, with the hearing stuff? Yeah. Well, it's... <laughs> with the, what? What was the question? I didn't hear it. Yeah. Um... Uh, yeah, I was born with a, with with a lack of nerve endings in my ears, so I knew eventually I, I needed to go get hearing aids. And then I just saw a bunch of concerts when I was twelve, and then I walked out of there with like, I went to go see the Who in nineteen eighty two, and I didn't have like, I was it's not like I was sitting at the first row, but I was like pretty pretty close. And I walked out of there and, and and thinking like something's wrong, like something's off, you know, and and it just seemed like 
the, the, there's a switch in my ears that went down from, you know, volume 10 down to level six or five or wow. something. Um, and I lost like 30% of my hearing within like a year and I knew it was coming, but probably seeing all those concerts as a teenager didn't really help. And so it just sped up everything. So I've been wearing hearing aids in both ears since, um, since I was 14, 14 and a half and, uh, have about, 65% loss in my left ear and almost 70% in my right ear, which is so perfect, right? To work in the music industry. <laughs> it's like being, you know, it's like being blind, but loving baseball and becoming an umpire, trying to figure out, you know, where the strike zone was and where the ball was based on where it hit the catcher. You know, <laughs> it, it's... Um, did it affect you? Like, how, no, it must have affected you. How yeah. did it affect you? Um, it... it, it uh, <laughs> the... I certainly lost a lot of hearing aids, so it, it kind of affected my parents' financial situation a lot more than it did for me. Um, it, it didn't. Um, I, still, I still, to this day, take out the hearing aids when I go see a show, which gives me a great excuse not to talk to anybody sometimes. Um, it, it doesn't really, because I never, I mean, I'm sure that... I'm missing things sometimes in the music or in the songs that other people could hear. But I think we're all like that. Mm -hmm. I think unless you have producers ears and you can see music and you can listen for certain things, I just don't have that much of a musical background enough to say what was a bum note or what was a bad mistake in music. To me, it's just all like, Oh, that was cool. You, you know? And it's, and, and your love of and appreciation of music was never affected by this. No, no. In 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 fact, it's it's almost made it, um, more important as as I get older because now I'm I'm far more supportive of causes when it comes to to hearing loss and and wearing hearing aids when you need them. I started a, a foundation with my audiologist about fifteen years ago, and it was to. Um, to raise money and awareness for um, for kids who need hearing aids in families that really can't afford it because they're not cheap. No. They go right now each each hearing aid is about you know anywhere between three and five thousand dollars in the year, um, and because they're they're amazing what they can do now. They you know they have different levels and different volume settings and if I wanted to talk on the phone I can just use this remote control and not get any feedback or I have a I have a setting on my hearing aid to listen to music so it it allows you to listen to music specifically within like 10 feet but block off all the other noises around you it used to bug me to no end when I was sitting at a restaurant because I can hear all the conversations around me or when it was raining I could hear the rain but knowing full well that this is just what everybody else hears. I, it's not that I, I would have suddenly super hearing. It would be just making up for what you normally could right. hear at a normal time. So that took some some getting used to. But when I started the foundation, it, it truly made me realize that, you know, without coming off as, you know, there's a stigma attached to it. Yeah, there's a stigma attached to it, but then there's a stigma attached to like being short as a kid or, you know, having to shave when you're 11 years old or 12 years old. There's a stigma <laughs> to just being a human being. But I started this foundation that, that has a fun fest every year um, because there were a lot of families out there when the government changed their rules that couldn't afford these hearing aids because the government wa wasn't, you know, subsidizing a lot of them anymore. 
Um, so today we've raised, you know, uh, just under the neighborhood of about $225,000 in the, wow. in the 15 years that that's paid for a lot of hearing aids, but there wasn't a, um, I, I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not self-conscious about it. I, I discovered that I found out that I have, I've got tinnitus and that was more of a bother to me than ever before like than anything else <clears throat> because the tinnitus I've heard that from different artists, it sounds horrible what they go through. Mm -hmm. um, I know of a couple of artists that have, have truly, like, you know, literally committed suicide because the, the, the sound of it just impeded on anything, of anything happy in their lives for it. Um, but as I got older, it just made me realize that, um, that I don't have to go out seven nights a week and I don't have to be at every single show. And now I have the perfect excuse that, oh, I just want to protect my hearing <laughs> rather than I just want to be kind of antisocial on this Thursday night. Um, but it's certainly, you know, on social media, whenever I see a story about, um, you know, new developments in hearing technology, I always post it because I, I think <clears throat> we're going to, we're going to see way more people that are going to develop hearing problems and hearing loss in the next five or six or 10 years than any other generation, because I think we were the first generation to really grow up um, with earbuds right. and with the iPod and carrying music with you with the Walkman. And I think it goes back all that way. And I think it's, we're just not made to have all these sounds so close to our ears as much times as we listen to music. But keep listening to music, people. <laughs> just, just do it from a safe distance. The other thing I read about you was your love of Smithsonian folkways. Yeah. And how did that happen? And that was almost like a driving force. That's where you and I first started talking. I back in the days yeah. of, of Koch. Yeah. We were... Um, I, 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 had a, a I had two amazing professors at York. One of them was uh, Matt Vanderwood, who taught the history of rock and roll. And then... Um, um, and Rob Bowman, who still to this day is, is one of like the smartest people I've ever met when it comes to music and music history. Mm -hmm. And I took the history of rock and roll class and they, they were the first ones to really teach me about this label called Smithsonian Folkways. And it was really where, where folk music and blues music began. And I got into Pete Seeger and Lead Belly and, and Joan Baez and all of these amazing artists, um, that kind of came from the, the folkways moment of it. And when I, when I wanted to get, work for a record label and doing PR, I my first job I ever applied for out of the blue um, was Smithsonian Folkways because I wanted to work for them. I wanted to, to just be around a label that was really, really important, but not in the terms of how Creation Records was important because they discovered Oasis and Jesus and Mary Chain, and I loved both bands, but that this was truly a label that had historical importance um, not just in music, but in terms of society and politics and and geography and how it all blended together. Um, and I never heard back from them, um, which was fine. And then I, I started working for a, a, a small label at the time called Shoreline. And Shoreline Records had three artists. They had um, The Nylons and Patricia Conroy, and they just released the first EP from Nickelback. Hmm. And... Um, worked at that label for a, a couple of months and then we changed distributors from another company to Koch and distributors at the time were the most unglamorous unsexy part of the industry they were essentially moving a box of CDs from the warehouse to the record stores and that was it right. but Koch was was built 
really smartly. They they had, you know, about 120 labels that they were handling the retail distribution for, but all of the labels were American-based, and they didn't know or care about the first thing about Canada. None of these labels in the States cared about Canada because it was we were 4% of the world market to them. So they're going to spend 4% of their time on us. And the president of Koch, Dominic Zarka, was brilliant because he hired me. Um, not that that wasn't a brilliant move because that was a really brilliant move. Um, but I started to do all these, all, all the PR for all the label that we were distributing. So I went from working four artists on Shoreline or three or four artists at Shoreline to almost 250 artists a month because I would be working all of these artists. And one of the labels that they were distributing was Smithsonian Folkways. And I remember that going into the last interview at Koch, Dominic asked me what my salary would be. And I said, just give me one copy of everything that Smithsonian Folkways puts out. And we're good. Because I'm going to spend my money on the label anyway. Um, and he said, yeah, that's nice. And I, for a moment there, I, I, I thought, oh, what did I do? You know, um, Here's the paycheck. Here's, here's the paycheck. Here's seven promo CDs and the lead belly box set. Um, but I was so proud to work that label. And it was at the time, too, like in 1999, when I first started at that label, where, you know... Um, Ella Jenkins' Songs for Children on Smithsonian Folkways, the first time on CD from a vinyl record that came out in the 50s, would be selling 140 copies at Sam the Record Man on Young Street. Like, it was the time when, you know, the local weekly would do a review of Lead Belly's, you know, new greatest hits album on Folkways, and, you know, we would be selling 4,000 copies just to the libraries and doing really, really well with that. And so there, there were just so much, I, I just felt so lucky and so proud just to be handling and working some of their stuff and working with the great people over there. So, you know, I did that for, you know, almost, uh, almost 15, 16, 17 years until they went all digital. When, when you say PR, can you just at a very high level explain what that entails yeah it's um so i was responsible for everything from the creation of the bios for the band to the press releases that i would be sending out to the media so anytime that they had a new release they would need you know we would need to announce it so it would be writing the bios and the press releases and then working with all the print outlets in in canada so all the daily newspapers all the weekly magazines and all the the monthly magazines um all the radio stations from campus radio to the shows that were on campus radio so you know in the case of say folkways or putumayo world music working with the folk and the and the world music um shows to do interviews and get the music played and then working with TV stations whenever there was a tour in their market booking uh, booking the artist to perform on the show. And I loved it because it, it seemed like um, however small part that I was that I had in the industry, it was it was just my chance to, you know, just to share music and, and talk to like minded people about what they were doing and what these artists were doing. But I was never these I could never work in a corporate office doing PR. I loved doing PR for in the music industry. I, I would, I got a couple of jobs when I was on my own, when I first started working for, um, you know, medical products, cause they just offered me boshes of money to do it. And at the time, like I was working, you know, when, when, when I first started the company, it, it, I mean, I was struggling just like everybody else, you know, I would be working literally 
you know, bars like the Free Times Cafe in Toronto for food because I was just so happy. And it's just like, well, you know what? Why don't you pay me? And then this way, when you pay me in food, and then when, I, when I'm talking to a brand new artist, I'll come down here and we'll eat for free and it'll be great and it's a nice trade-off. So I was making no money, um, but I loved every minute of it. Every single day I was doing it, I, was, I, I felt like I had won, you know? Um, and so when I got offered to do PR for this medical company with some of their new products, I mean, the money that they were offering, I, I couldn't even say no. I mean, it was the size of working with like 20 indie bands at the time. And I stunk at it. I was horrible. And I realized that, you know, this is what it is. It's the passion that you love to do it. You know, you love, you need to continue to do what you love to do and what you want to do. And I can show you press kits that are hundreds of pages tall for artists that sold no records that I loved working and that the artist was so appreciative of that. But then on the other hand, I can show you press kits that have two pages for artists that sold 100,000 copies because <laughs> they just don't fit in the coolness of what the media was writing about at the time. So, um, so yeah, so PR was essentially just doing the outreach to the media so that I can continue to give them content and stories and ideas to write about so they can fill up their their spaces and their airtime. So how much has PR changed? So now you've gone out on your own. Yeah. And, and you, I don't know if it's correct to say you're doing the same thing because times have changed and it's things exactly are different. It's the same thing, yeah. But yeah. how much has it changed and how much is your approach different now? Yeah, you know, in, in the beginning when we were first talking about, you know, uh, how, how the roads were pretty set where you released a single and then an album and then a video, and then you went out on tour, and that was really easy. So if you didn't get your video played on much music, and you were a pop artist or a rock artist in Canada, you were kind of screwed. Like, mm -hmm. there, there wasn't really a whole lot that you could do, and that just says the importance of, of, of a channel like Much Music to this country, just like how MTV was so important to breaking new artists in America. Um, but now it's changed so much because um, there are so many different outlets now where people can turn to to find out information. So it's not necessarily, you know, one newspaper in Toronto that everybody is reading. Now we have, you know, the Star, the Sun, the Globe and the Post, and now magazine as a weekly. But then we also have like 65, 70 blogs that just specifically write about the city of Toronto, whether it's arts or culture or politics or fashion or sports or, or daily news. Um, so everything is more everything is more scattered and everything is more segregated so that we're all not watching or listening or reading the exact same things anymore. So PR has changed by, um, I, I can't just rely on the daily newspaper and the, the, the rock radio station in that city to break an artist anymore. Now I have to rely on the 7,400 blogs around the world that I have on my database because maybe a hundred people are reading that blog in Italy, but for me, a spin and a stream from anywhere all adds up. So I'm playing with a little bit of a world market now rather than just basically, hey, you're a band from Burlington. Let's work Burlington first mm -hmm. and then go to Toronto and then go to Ottawa and break Ottawa and then let's go to Halifax or let's go the other way and try to break Vancouver and then the whole country will fall like dominoes. I have artists that that get way more media attention in the UK than I do in Canada and they're Canadian simply because 
it takes me the same amount of time to reach somebody from the Toronto Star than it does for a blogger in Zimbabwe. You know, it's the exact same email. It's the exact same video on YouTube that I can stick up there. So it's a, it's, it's a lot harder because there's far more outlets and it's a little bit more frustrating because there's not a whole lot of people that's reading the exact same thing. Um, but it means that my chances of success are a lot greater if, um, if an artist sticks because I can now go after, you know, Pitchfork or Rolling Stone or No Depression in America and see them all as equals rather than, oh, you've got a small blog with 25 readers. I don't care about you. I've never felt that way. Right. It was always like you are important as just as important as Rolling Stone to me because you may have 25 people a day that read it, but maybe those 25 people <clears throat> are the right people for me to, to go after. And maybe you've got the right readership. At the same time, you have, since when I first met you, you have become the social media guru. And if I looked at my LinkedIn page or if I looked at Instagram, again, mm. I don't know why, but you're always on the top of my list. Right, you're right. everywhere. Mm. Um, Sorry. <laughs> but, I, and, and, you know, if I didn't know better, I'd think, well, how could you be here when these things are being posted <laughs> at a yeah. regular basis? Magic. <laughs> Magic. Um, but I presume a lot of work goes into that and gathering the material and, and yeah. timing it to be sent at a certain, mm. certain time. Sure. It, it's as much as... Um, you know, the word brand <clears throat> was always batted about in the last decade or so, especially when it comes to social media. But we, they were bands and artists were and record labels always had a brand, even even when they didn't realize it. Um, you know, Atlantic Records in the 60s have, has a brand. Motown was a brand. Sub Pop was a brand. Smithsonian Folkways was a brand. And um, social media has just allowed people now to have their own brand what do you stand for who are you what do you like what don't you like where do you stand politically what do you believe in and when I first got on social media I got onto to MySpace really really late and I just I just didn't really care about it I, I couldn't see the reason why I needed to post something and and care about what anybody else thought um Meaning, I, I, I could never get into the mindset of, oh, this post worked really, really well, and now I feel really good about myself, but this post did nothing, so I should feel crappy about myself. I never thought that. So when I first got on Twitter, just, just, uh, just around eight years ago, um, it allowed me to just purge everything. It, it, it was like, we all started off as an egg. You know, we all start off with zero followers and the exact same way of how I post on Twitter those eight years ago is exactly how I post now. I just post stuff I like. I post photos that I find that I love. I post little fun facts about musicians that I find interesting. I, I read a lot or I find a lot of stuff online so I can share those kind of things. Um, and a, a lot of the a lot of the times, I mean, I have Twitter open all day and all night. I know I've got a tab all day and all night whenever I'm working. I can see what works and I can see what doesn't work, but I'm still not engaging. So know? if I was to ask you, when you first started, you were just trying to figure out what it was and yeah. how to use it. And now, years later, you're a guru. <laughs> you're out there doing stuff. What? At what point did you think this is a workable format 
and and what mm-hmm. evidence did you see that you thought, wow, this is a oh, really I'll, good tool? I'll tell you exactly the moment where where it was. Um, <clears throat> I um, it, it, I was posting maybe you know one or two things a day on Twitter, and then I found a site that allowed me to link up um, uh, Twitter and LinkedIn and both Facebook pages um, that I have. Because I, I, you know, I'll, I'll back up. I got first on Facebook, like most of us did, and then because I worked in the music industry, um, I got a lot of friend requests from bands and artists. So I hit that five thousand friend mark really, really quickly, and so I had all these people that still wanted to be my friend, which is so funny because it's like I have that, you know, I got a million and a half followers on Twitter, but I have like four friends in real life. You know what I mean? Like I, I know nobody, and so when I hit that mark, I, I had to create. Somebody said, well, create a fan page. Yeah. It's like, why would anybody want to be a fan of me? I'm not, I don't even have fans of me in my own house. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it, it, I'm not that guy. So I started a fan page and that quickly blew up and it's like 25,000 fans. And, and what were you posting here? Pardon me? What were you posting that, or was it um, just because of who you, you are? You know, just, uh, I would be posting interviews that I would find with artists. Um, then I started a website and then so I would be posting stuff on there or videos that I would find or... Um, you know, just things where I can just house things. But normally on social media, it was just things that I found interesting. I mean, my wife, you know, likes to say that she was so happy when I got on Twitter because then I stopped bugging her about, hey, did you know that back in 1968, blah, 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 you know, did this guitar part backward, but it was a mistake, so they kept it in anyway, you know, or the doom part in Abbey Road was just like the engineer cutting it off at the wrong spot, but they kept it in. Like, those, like my wife doesn't care about any of this. And so, but you know, people do on Twitter, so that's good, you know? Um, so it would, it was the same thing. It was like posting, you know, videos I would find on YouTube, um, writing a fun fact about something, um, anniversaries, birthdays, um, and things like that. And then, uh, the moment when I realized that, uh Oh, like, like I have to really start taking this seriously was I was live tweeting, which sounds funny anyway. Um, so I was, I was tweeting live during the Grammy awards one night and I posted, um, so I was posting all the way through and then Chris Brown came on and it was just after the whole, um, the whole situation with him when, you know, he allegedly, you know, beat up Rihanna. And, um, so I was posting, a lot through the evening. And then when Chris Brown came, uh, came on the air, um, I stopped posting. And then after he got off the, the air, I posted that, you know, my, my non tweet during Chris Brown's performance would brought to you by men who don't hit women and women who, <laughs> who don't stick around when, when men hit them. Right. Um, and, um, and I almost got fired like that next day because, um, what, what I, what I, so the tweet you know, and keep in mind, I had maybe, you know, maybe 30,000, 40,000 followers at the time, which, which was a lot, but I mean, certainly, you know, nowhere near what it is now. Um, but that tweet exploded and, and it went from like, you know, 100 view or 100 retweets and shares to like 200. And I was like, oh, this is cool. This is what it must mean to go viral. And then I put the phone down and then the next thing you know, I picked it up like 10 minutes later and it had like 1500 and then 2000 and 3000. And obviously I think I hit a nerve with, with something. So, but I realized that. So then I walked into the office the next day and, and, um, and I'm so grateful that, that I learned this lesson and I truly appreciate them doing that was like, you know, the president 
called me and said, you know, I, I, sh I should fire you right now. And I was like, why? He said, because of that tweet. Because we actually work with Sony. And Sony happens to be the record label for Chris Brown. Hmm. And so what you've done is you've not you've taken a stand against something that we, we all truly believe in, but you have affected our business to be, you know, not like that Chris Brown sales went down, but you have insulted an artist that right. we happen to work with. And I realized at that moment just the, the absolute power of social media. And it was around that time when like people with four followers would write something and then just get on BuzzFeed the next day and lose their job or lose their family. Right. And I really, this is really a dangerous place to be in. And I'm so thankful to have learned that lesson because what it really taught me about social media in general that I still see to this day is um, there's so much there's so much anger and there's so much hate on social media, but you really do have to be careful with with what you say and that's where i started to learn really all about being pos positive and and positivity and i was always like that but i never really truly realized that even by taking a stand against something it means that there are other people who don't want to stand with you which why i never tweet about politics i could never even the even the gun issue right now um i've got my own views my family knows exactly how we all feel about it. You can pretty much tell what side of politics I'm on in general, but I never want to split my audience because at the end of the day, nobody cares what Eric Alper has to say about Donald Trump. There are people on CNN that will do that for you. But you it's know? interesting though, because yeah. there's enough people who care about what you have to say about other things or else you wouldn't have that many followers. Um, yes, but it's also that, you know, you just because you have the power to be um just because you've got the power to say something doesn't necessarily mean that you always have to say something which is so funny now that i think about all of this and talking to you about it is like and then here i am talking about what a wonderful label smithsonian folkways was who was one of like the most outstanding political labels of them all or talking about my love of motown and marvin gay and you know none of these people would be where they are if they didn't really take a stand. Or some of the best artists I've ever loved, whether it's the Indigo Girls or R.E.M. or Springsteen or, or um, you know, Dave Matthews or Ziggy Marley, all taking a stand for something, but I can't because it's not my job to, to let people know how I feel. It's, it's, it's my, my, my stupid duty <laughs> to let people know what's out there. So they can make right. up their own minds. And it's kind of like, look, uh, you know, there are certain bands I know get a lot of hate. I'll tweet about Nickelback and I will, I, I can stand back. I know what I'm doing when I tweet <laughs> about Nickelback. I know what it's going to do. Why do you think it is that? Why do you think so many people hate Nickelback? I, you know what? I, I think they're, I think it's just in the same way of in the seventies growing up that it wasn't cool to like journey. Cause they just do their job really, really well, which is just create rock and roll music that, yeah. that, you know, um, that, some people just don't like. I don't know what it is about them, but they're the nicest, sweetest guys I've ever met. They are the the, the kindest, um, generous, honest people that you would want to ever hang with. Um, so I know that you know when Nickelback wins an award and I post about it, it's because like, hey, you know, it's Nickelback. Look, you don't sell 35 million copies of your albums without somebody liking you. So I'm cool with posting that. Um, but I know, you know, but then I'll post something about like St. Vincent or David Byrne and get such little response. 
but I know that, and I know, and I'm okay with that still because I know that that is art. Like that's art. Right. But then on the other side, I can post something about journey, which is almost the furthest thing <laughs> from, you know, the, the artistic grand statement of a talking heads and journey will get like way more response because people just like, don't stop believing, you know, <laughs> and, and there's no rhyme or reason for anything to really happen in the way that it does, except for, um, except for just those lessons. And, you know, uh, uh, you know, so when I talk to bands, you know, I'll say to them, look, you can go down a couple of roads, you know, if you want to take a stand, go nuts, take a stand against something, you know, um, reveal stuff about yourself, but know full well that you could very well cut out not just half your audience, but all of your audience if you think you read it wrong. And the best artists in the world have read their audience wrong at one time or another, whether it's Springsteen going up, talking about, you know, an introduction to to 41 shots about police brutality mm -hmm. and people booed him right. because he did it in New York where you don't, you don't insult New York cops or, you know, Pearl Jam, you know, taking it, you know, uh, doing, or it, you know what, anybody in Hollywood that took a stand, uh, you know, for Clinton in the last election, realizing that they were just, they were screaming in a vacuum, not even realizing that, you know, there were still 50% of the country who didn't like you anymore because you sided with her, right. you know? So, um, so I realized that it's okay to be lukewarm on everything. It's okay to just share stuff and not wade in any political waters and not take the bait. What, what is the function of that, of, of your presence on, on social media? Um, is it to sell your brand? Is it sell your I get media to sit here with you. Pardon? I get to sit here with you. <laughs> you know, God. that's, that's the reward. Oh, the, <laughs> this you know, is it? it, it I don't, you know, the, the, all these social media sites started by antisocial people. It, you know, Facebook got started because Mark Zuckerberg couldn't get a date. Right. You know, um, Twitter started because the guys from Twitter didn't really want to write long winded posts on Facebook. So they condensed them all down to 140 characters. Instagram started because they just stunk at taking photos. So they created this, this app that, allowed everybody to look like a supermodel if they wanted to. Um, social media to me would just, it was just something fun. And then that led to, I don't know, I guess kind of being, other people could call an, an expert or a guru or whatever word that they want to put on there. But I think it's just, I, I think it just comes down to those, to just doing things that you would do in life, you know, don't talk crap about somebody. If you can't say it online, if you can't say it to somebody's face, don't post online. Right. <clears throat> Always know that this could be the one treat that destroys your life. Um, and it's allowed me to, <clears throat> to kind of expand a little bit and to, to talk about music in the media, to, to go on television and talk about certain issues or when people die, I get to go on and talk about, their their lives and and feel like a little bit of a priest giving giving a memorial to somebody so it's allowed me to kind of just purge a little bit and, and say oh this is really cool i'm going to share this right but you also pose a lot of questions and make people think about music and you know what's your favorite album cover or what yeah. song does this or whatever <clears throat> yeah and and what would you what would be the motivation behind that just to keep talking about music yeah just to just to make people you know music helps people remember but it also makes people forget um and <clears throat> those questions were a really good way 
for me to find out really who the audience was and just to have some fun with it. So yeah, I'll post questions, um, you know, in music and it's, and it's, you know, really simple, basic questions like, you know, what artist do you think had the greatest debut album of all time to, um, you know, what's the la- what's the best last song on an album or who had the greatest three album run in history or, um, you know, what artists don't you get, but right. everybody else seems to. But by the same token, the very next question would be, what artists do you love that you think nobody else gets? And then you see those answers and, and you realize that, wow, like we're all, we're all the, the, the same screwed up people. Um, but then I'll post questions that the ones that get the most responses are things like, you know, without telling, without using numbers, how old are you? Or without using the metric system, how tall are you? Hmm. Or what's your height? And then people will come up with the greatest answer. They'll say, you know, like I can reach the top shelf with tippy toes. Or I'm or I'm taller than my wife, but shorter than my son. You know, and those things that just kind of like they're they're here for my own entertainment. You know, <laughs> they're just fun for me to read every, you know, in, in like 10 minutes when I can go through everything. But the, the questions were really designed, um, you know, in, in a marketing sense to kind of create that engagement without having to engage with people to just allow people to engage with me, but I don't have to engage with them. But then as, as I, as social media gets more mature and older, people start talking to one another and having their own conversations. And that's all it really was. It was just something to break from the, from the bullhorn that I think sometimes I use during the day of like, you know, here's something, here's something, here's something. Hey, let me ask you this. You know, here's right, something, right. here's something, here's something, or here's an announcement. And the, the, the best thing about social media for me was I didn't always have to talk about my artists. And in fact, I, I rarely did. Um, I, I played the artists on social media and talked about them as much as I did about Neil Young, people I don't work with. Right. And um, that, was the great, that was the great power that, that I was given and that I, I gave to myself was because it, that, that's the one thing that, that artists tend to for, tend to forget or brands tend to forget that's okay to talk about other things other than you you know you don't always have to be about you know I was talking to a couple of music festivals a couple of weeks ago and you know they were having trouble in, you know increasing their numbers on social media which is just like the the worst way to think about it it's like how do we get more followers it's like well you know just continue to be entertaining that's all cuz people want to share things that are entertaining and, and when I went through their social media stuff, they were only talking about themselves. Here's who's coming up on our festival. Here's the video for this artist. Here's a video for that artist. Here's the thing for that. And when I'm going through their social media stuff, it's kind of like, well, I don't even know where you are. Hmm. You know, are you in Peterborough? Cool. What's there to do in Peterborough? Go take a photo of the hotel that's there. Go do an interview with the local animal shelter. Go do an interview with a restaurant owner. Give me a reason to think that Peterborough is going to be the greatest city in Canada and I have to go do this. And it's okay to put the spotlight on, on other people. And so when you're a record label, sometimes it's really, really hard to say, well, wait a second, why do I want to promote somebody else's artist? And it's like, because you can. Because it's all music and it's all good. So, you know, I, while I understand that, you know, obviously you know, Pizza Hut doesn't want to go on and talk about dominoes in a great manner. Right. Um, I, I think it's okay to to start putting to to put the spotlight on other people that's not you and that's and my artists know that. That yeah, when you get some good press, absolutely I'll post about you. But I'm also gonna post about artists that I have nothing to do with. Was it was it difficult to start your own company? Like when you made the decision to do your own thing, 
Was that a difficult choice? Um, no, I had no choice. Um, I, I, uh, when I left E1, um, I realized that I was in a really, really lucky position because I still had all my skills as a publicist and I still had all the contacts that I developed over the last 20 years and I still had my love of music. So I wasn't burnt out by any means. And so I thought, you know what, if I'm never going to work for another company again, and if I am going to work for another company or another label, I, I don't want to go in. I, I may not want to go into an office anymore. Um, so I started my own company literally on this, in the subway ride home. Um, I called my accountant, got him to register an incorporation. By the time I got home, I had my own company. And then within an hour of me getting home from the day that I left, um, I got a call from Jeff Kulovic, who is the the owner of True North Records, and, and it was a label that I worked with um, up until that time. And so he said, what are you doing now? And I was like, nothing, great, come on over and see me tomorrow morning. And so immediately I started doing PR for that label. And then all the band that I was doing PR for um, came on, like Andy Kim and David Clayton Thomas and, and 5440 and um, so many of these of the artists that I was working with because they all kind of said the same thing, which was so great of them. Um, you know, they said, well, you know, we just, we like working with you, you know, mm -hmm. like E1 was great, but we're still on E1. So like, why should we stop? And so that gave me uh, the, the confidence to still hit the ground running. And really I, it's, it, I've never, I used to think I was busy back then, but it's never, I've never had days that were so fulfilling like this because now I don't feel guilty working 18 hours a day now i love i love the fact and i just happen to have a family that that works just as hard as i do with their own stuff going on so we're like busy bees in our house but it wasn't you know i think we still have all those moments every single day where it's like i don't know what i'm doing at all you know i'm just faking this or i'm just like the biggest phony in the world and everybody still has that and nobody's got it figured out we're all we're all works in progress. Nobody's figured it out. I look at somebody in the publicity business, like Richard Flohill, who's got to be like up there in like his, you know, 80s, maybe 70s. Yes. Did I just like maybe date him by 10 years? Um, he's living the dream for me. Like he is a guy that is still able to do what he does yeah. or Jane Harbury or Joanne Smale, these veterans of PR that still continue to do what they do, whether they love it, whether they're doing it out of necessity and love, whether they hate everybody, but they love the money, regardless of whatever, you know, love that they have. And I know that they are so honest and authentic because they wouldn't be around if they was if they weren't. But those people are the people I look up to because like, wow, if, if I could still be doing this 20 years from now, like amazing. Did you, in the, in the years that you were with, Iwan or Koch or whoever, yeah. and the business of music being what it is, was there ever a point where you lost the passion to never. for music? No, never, 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 never. I've had days where, um, I I had days, and I still have days where, I I I'm working with an artist, and for the nineteenth time, they can't make up their mind on what day they're going to do a promo date in Toronto after 18 attempts of me reaching out to the media on all those days. But then I just think, oh, dude, like first world problems, you know, like really, like what are you, you know, so you email them back again, shut up, you know, like the, but the, what's the worst thing that they, that they can say to you is no, I'm busy on that day. You know, um, this doing 
doing any kind of PR job or even because it's a selling job, but I'm not one of these like, hey, this is the greatest band you'll ever see in your entire life and let's go do lunch. Like I'm never like that. But any kind of selling job, if you, if you worry about, look, I send out 1,500 to 2,000 pitches a day on five to seven to 10 artists a day. And a good day for me, like if I have an artist like Andy Kim or 5440, I send out 60 pitches. I'm going to get 59 of them back saying, we're in. We want to do an interview. We'd love to have 5440 on. Absolutely. Who wouldn't? Right. Those are the times that it is just such adrenaline that it can. I, I feel like I don't need to sleep for four days. And then there's other times when you send out a pitch and it just goes nowhere. You send it out to 1,500 people and like you're lucky to get two two responses back. One of them says, take me off the list. You absolute jerk. And the other one says, sorry, we're busy. If you let, if you concentrate on the 1,498 people that ignored you, you are not going to have a long life anywhere because it's just going to kill you and eat you up inside. So I tend to rely on the happiness and the good things that I'm able to get. So if an artist wants you to represent Mm -hmm. them and take on their um, media relations, is that something that do you do you take on anybody who's willing to pay or do you um, only work with people you want to work with? Um, both. Um, but my expectations and their expectations are both have to be in line with wherever you are. There's people that I have, that I have been offered to work with that are really big that I've been told were nightmares to work and you couldn't pay me enough money to work those people. So I said no to them. Then there were other artists who nobody outside of their mother or father knew and I loved and I worked with them literally for free because anything that I was able to get was a bonus for them at least in the beginning where expectations have to be lower than say you're working a a more known artist but for the most part I would say for all the parts um, I work stuff I love I work stuff that I think the media would be interested in and um Different artists want different things. If you're a brand new artist, maybe you don't get a lot of stuff happening in the media, but maybe you just want to, you know, shoot the breeze with me for an hour a week and just talk about ideas that they can do in social media, you know, what works, what doesn't work, you know, try going live on Facebook, try going live on Instagram, you know, let's take a look at those numbers and see and not dig really deep into the semantics or the mathematics of like, oh, you know, you've got women 18 to 32 that love you, but you know, I don't do any of that. It's just like, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about your audience and all that stuff? So there, there's artists that, that I can't go straight to Entertainment Tonight Canada with or, you know, breakfast television with because they're just not ready but then I've, I've also got artists that they'll never get on there anyway because their music just doesn't suit it but I love working them so it's got to be a couple of things but I have I have yet to turn down a single artist that have that has approached me and and if because I can always find something good in things and and you know? if I know it's different for every different artist you work with but how do you measure success mm, that they don't kill me at the end of it um, yeah. Um, you know, it, it, on a very basic level, it would be as, as silly as, well, I'm able to look at all the different blog posts and all the different media hits that I was able to get and that's success. <clears throat> but then for the artists, they can absolutely come back to me 
and say, yeah, you got all this stuff, but I'm still stuck at a thousand views of my YouTube video. Um, so I think it's, it's a matter of just talking to them ahead of time and finding out what they really, really want. And they all want the same thing. They all want to get signed by a major label that takes all their money, but gives them a limo and gold plated <laughs> sandwiches with, you know, really, they still have that dream. Yeah. They still, you know, they, they still, they still want the, the, they, they still want to be able to grab that brass ring and have complete control over what they're doing and being wealthy beyond means. Everybody still, I think, wants that. But the success is, for a lot of artists, they just kind of want to find a manager, or sometimes they just want yeah. to find a booking agent. And the media can certainly help that, because if you start to get a lot of media or a lot of radio play, it, it kind of allows that, that thing that we talked about in the beginning, that it's very easy to get that break. It's very hard to be great, though, is that you know if you start to build the buzz, locally and then reach out within your province or your state and then reach out from there the booking agents read the exact same stuff as everybody else so they're going to see that name keep popping up and then they're going to say oh i wonder if they're ready to take the next step i wonder if they're really that great i wonder how their live show is i wonder if they've got a good a good value system i wonder if this band truly likes one another because if i stick them on the road eight months straight are they going to end up killing themselves you know right. do they treat you know, the bar staff nicely, do they, you know, the, the biggest successes in music, whether it's Elton John or Springsteen or, or, you know, those kind of artists or Nickelback, they just treat people well, you know? Um, I and, was going to ask you that. Yeah. I was going to ask you with the different level of people you've worked with, especially the ones way up there. Yeah. What constant thing do you get back from them or what, what is the constant thing that they have that, is it the niceness? I think they all know how lucky they are, but also how much um, how much other people had to do with their success. As much as they may not want to readily admit that, because all day and all night long, people like you and I and the media are telling, and fans are telling them just how great yeah. they are and how wonderful they are and how amazing that album cover looks. But then, you know, if you're, if you're you too, and people tell you all the time that the Joshua Tree album was the greatest album cover that they've ever seen, or I had the poster on my wall, you two will sit there and they'll say thank you. But, you know, they know it was the photographer, the lighting person, the, you know, the person that drove them there, the person that decided to give Bono, um, you know, a, 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 t a white t-shirt instead of a button down, you know, it's all those people, the, the people that, that brought, that helped bring them to the level. It's, it's the size of a city, you know? And so I think that all these artists that the constant that they all have is just a sense of gratitude to, and I'm not talking about like kissing the publicist's ass no, because no. like they really should kiss my ass <laughs> a lot more and thank the publicist, you know, but no, it, it, it's, it's, it's that they, they understand how hard everybody else around them has to work in order to make this car go. It takes, you know, the booking, it's like a car with wheels. You've got four wheels and it's like 
the, the manager and the booking agent and the record label and the radio and publicist and everybody else that comes involved and the gas is like the songs and everything else. But realistically, it's like, it's like that card just doesn't get made based on like two people. It's like there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of people from the people who work at the record label to the distributors to the person that sells at the record store. It's everything. And I think that they all have this sense of, of, of thankfulness because they know how lucky they are to have made it. You know, every artist that that has had a massive hit song that I've worked with <clears throat> or a reasonable amount of success could always pinpoint that tipping point. And it's never things that are, it's hardly things that are always in their control. There's always like this one guy in Kansas City who played the B-side of that single that came out that stiffed, but the B-side took off and that was like this song. And, right. it, and you know, there's always those people who manage to push the artist or the band forward just because they love the band and not for any other sense of it. And I think, you know, it, it's a... I, I wish that the younger artists or the newer artists should read a lot more or get to talk to these artists that have made it because sometimes they have a very skewed vision of how fast successes happen because they just see Psy and Gangnam Style go from zero to 5 million views on YouTube and then a billion thinking, oh, well, he just got signed to Scooter Braun's management company and why can't I have that? It's right. like, Dude, like Scooter Braun signed him like six months before they made that public, you know? You know, Lana Del Rey comes out of nowhere. No, she didn't. She, you know, she had two albums that they made disappear, you know? Katy Perry comes out of nowhere. No, she was a Christian rock right. artist who, you know, I'm sure the record, <coughs> I'm sure the record label or somebody just bought all those old copies just so that they can make him disappear. But just the, the amount of work that went into overnight successes. But I think people have this vision of like, Wow, well, it just takes one Instagram post. It's like, no, not really, you know? And if so, that's the perception that they want you to think. Yeah, well, I would think things like American Idol and whatever helps that. Yeah, that but, you know, you, you know, just like, but American Idol is a perfect example. You know, you saw even people like Kelly Clarkson or, or Carrie Underwood or, or, you know, any of those artists kind of make it. Um, but then you go back and you you sit down and you talk to Kelly Clarkson or you read more about her and you realize that she's been performing in talent shows since she was five. Mm -hmm. You know, that they just didn't happen to be like, oh, I'm just a waitress and I just had a day off so I decided to go on there with no musical talent whatsoever. Right. That's William Hung, you know? And, and I mean, William Hung made probably more money than anybody else that actually made the top five anyway. But realistically, it was... Um, you you only get to see what they want you to to see. There's a reason why the Wizard of Oz had that curtain, you know, right. away from everybody else because it's just that that magical vision that they they want you to believe in. You know, um, it's a it, for for and 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 I think it happens in any art where you look at a brand new sixteen year old actor or actress that's in some new hot movie and you think, wow, they just got lucky. No, they didn't, you know. They were probably doing crappy, you know, theatrical performances in their small town from when they were, you know, eight, mm -hmm. going to audition day after day after day after day and and wanting it really badly. Yeah, so true. Um, I'll have to wrap this up, but yeah. before I do, I want to just talk about your radio show mm -hmm. for somebody who was horrible at their 
radio show in the past. You yeah. have a radio show still. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about it. Uh, it's called That Eric Alper Show, and it's on Sirius XM Channel 167, Canada Talks Channel. And it's a one-hour talk show where I get to talk to musicians and managers and festivals about what they do and why they do the thing that they do. And it's really, it's never inside music. It's never, you know, inside baseball too much. I Maybe. don't get into the nitty gritty of how did you get that note? You know, I had Sue Foley on today and I, I you know, we were just talking about what the blues means and why, why does that style of music get the weight of the world on its shoulders with, oh, you can't do this and you can't do this, as opposed to, like, we don't talk about that in rap music. We mm -hmm. don't talk about that in rock. Nobody ever says, oh, you know, Nickelback, why aren't you, why aren't you praying to the God of Elvis Presley, you know? But we do that in blues. Like, mm -hmm. why is it that everybody has to bow down to Lead Belly and B.B. King and Muddy Waters? And, you know, why are the roots still so important to somebody like Sue Foley. And when you get to ask those kind of questions to somebody, I always have to come at it from, A, the fact that 99% of the listeners may not even have a Sue Foley record in their, in their collection, or maybe even know who she is. But I never want to get into, you have to be an expert to listen to this. It's just mostly like, hey, how come this happens? Or like, what do you do, you know, what do you do backstage for the hour before you go on? You know, do you sleep? Like, do you play a game? Like, do you drink yourself silly? And then, and then that's when the real stories come in. It's like, yeah, I've got a fear of playing. Fear of playing? You've been playing for like 30 years. And yes, I've been throwing up for 30 years, you know? So, you know, I just want to talk to them on a, on a more of a, of, a, of a human level rather than, a, um, you know, digging deep into the album. It's not a show for that because that's the stuff that I love. Right. Well, oh. thank you very much for doing this. Oh, happy to do it. I man. really appreciate thank it. And if you want to, thank you for being around. <laughs> We've been trying to get together for a while. Um, for more information on you, uh, on Eric, that EricAlper.com. Thank you very much, and um, thanks, man. I really appreciate this.